This is The Deal with Nisim Black. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on The Deal today. I have a wonderful guest who I'm so excited to interview. Never had the opportunity to hold a conversation with her, although I do know some of her family members. It's just a real pleasure and treat for me to be able to sit down with her today. Yavila McCoy is a founder and CEO and executive director of Dimensions Inc. Consulting. She was the founder of Ayeke, a nonprofit organization providing educational resources for Jewish diversity and advocacy for Jews of color in the United States. She's also a teacher, writer, and editor. All right, so Yavila McCoy, really, really happy to have you on the show. Nice to finally meet you in person. I was watching some Shiorim on YouTube. You know, I had to get myself well acquainted, even though, you know, a couple of your family members I know pretty well. So like me, you're black, you're Jewish, but unlike me, you were raised this way. You was raised in Brooklyn. You was raised Orthodox, Jewish home, the whole nine. Your parents are pioneers even for people like me. And you went to a Jewish school. So how was it like growing up in that type of environment? Um, I kind of have an idea seeing my own children, but I want to I wanna know from your perspective how it was, especially as a person of color. Yeah, it was training. I guess that's the best way I could say it. The way I look back on those days, it was training in what I was going to be and become. In the early days, I think what was most important was that I came from a home where my parents were very um, invested in both my Judaism and in me growing up feeling strong and proud of myself. So in my early days, my father would go over the partial with us. Um, my mother was very invested in my homework. The very first pasuk that I ever learned in first grade, I still remember because my mother sat up with me the first evening when I was learning my very first humash pasuk in Breshi, Hebrew to Hebrew. We had to translate it from Ivrit to Ivrit. And she sat with me until I knew it by heart. And here I am, almost 50 years old. I still know it by heart. Breshit. Like those words came into me because of the investment my parents had in our education, but also in our Judaism. And so that was the beginning. That was the sun. That was the sun that I came up in. Going into those schools, that's a whole nother thing. The biggest things I think that are, are were super important to notice that I look back on now and try to teach people differently about is the total lack of expectation for my existence. That coming into those spaces and folks, teachers, principals having no expectation that a little brown girl could come in and be fully invested and ready and excited and enthusiastic about Judaism in the way that I was. Everything was a question and a curiosity. And that changed the trajectory of my Jewish education because of that lack of expectation. When I came into school and I knew the parsha, people would go, wow. Or when I would, my father speaks Hebrew fluently. And so when I would be able to speak Hebrew, people would be like, wow, where are you from? All of that, which from their perspective maybe may have been innocent, it lands upon a young child's consciousness that you always have to prove yourself. You always have to come into the environment and make room for your existence, make room for you to be. And I think that was hard. Right. I'm looking at my, my own children going through, and they don't even have half the knowledge of 
I'm sure what your parents were able to give you because growing up in America and I think back in the 70s or so, that was a time to where they really had to give you guys that awareness much more so like my kids are really grown up in Israel. They're so far away from America. They have no idea about American identity and what that is. So we're like, my son was maybe almost seven years old, my oldest boy, when I realized that he didn't even know what basketball was. You know what I'm saying? Like, You know what I mean? So, it was, and it wasn't like an on-purpose thing, but just like, it just wasn't a part of his, it was part of my life growing up, but just not a part of his life. So, my question is, is like, you know, as you have children now also, how does that translate over to them now? Knowing what you knew before and then giving it over to your next generation, you know, how much do you touch touch on social issues and feel the importance and need to give that over? Well, I think as parents, we're born in the generation that we're supposed to live. Right. And in terms of our children, they are living in the generation in which they're supposed to live. You know, there's a concept in Torah called Yeridos Hadoros which means that, you know, every generation comes further away from the light, right? But I don't think that necessarily has to be true right. in the context of your righteousness. Like, Noah was righteous for his time and is mentioned mm-hmm. alongside the patriarchs. Mm-hmm. Why? Because in his time, just his way of being, even though it wouldn't have measured up possibly to an Abraham, it still was essential that he did what he did in his time because right. it saved the whole world. So for, for me, when I think about what I came through, you know, early 70s, yes, because that's when I was born, like early 70s coming through, there are some things that are still the same that I can pull wisdom from in terms of what I lived through. And there's some things that are completely new for this generation. They're living at different times. So the, the thing that I think is most important for my children to know for me, like about my upbringing, is that I grew up in a context of love. I'm, I was very um, blessed to have grown up under two African-American parents who loved themselves. Like they were not confused about their blackness being anything that meant they were less than or anything that meant that they had to apologize. In fact, they were celebrating who we were and our brownness. And I had, you know, I had a father who told me that essentially Abraham and Sarah looked like me. They probably look more right. like me than they look like a bunch of Europeans in fur and long locks along the side because they would have essentially died of dehydration living in the Middle East. Like, who can do that? That's right? amazing. And so you and your ancestors are essential and organic to this Judaism. You're not coming here apologizing or asking for people permission. So that love that came into me really early on, that we are essential and that who we are is a further expression of what Judaism can be, was bred into me. And so I think the super thing that's most important for folks who are raising young folks is to look into young people's eyes and tell them that they, number one, are exactly who Hashem created them to be. Number two, that Hashem is celebrating every day that they get up and move in the world and are honest and authentic about that creation being a gift. And then number three, when folks try to run lies at you that have nothing to do with what Judaism has taught historically or presently about the essence of what a human being can be in this world, that's exactly what it is. It's a lie. And midbar sheker tircha, right? right? Stay away from lies. Stay away from lies. That's not for you. Right, stay away from it. So this is for you. That's not for you. When you see somebody acting foolish, stay away from them people. And when you see people who can open up and welcome you and be a part of your Torah, welcome them with a full heart and open arms. But I teach my kids to stay away from foolish people. I'm, I'm honest. Like, I just... I don't need it. I don't want it. Neither do my kids. 
<laughs> right. No. I listen, you, you know, you are who you hang around. That's that's what my parents used to tell me. So, that's interesting and here's another thing which I want to understand if, if I know this right that not only did you have your parents, but initially there were a lot of people, I don't know if it was a movement or something like that, but the, you didn't grow up with only your parents being the only people of color. There was more families around at the time that you grew up, right? Maybe not as present anymore. I know there was a lot and there's not a lot of families around, maybe as much. Yeah. I grew up going to a pretty much a shul in which the majority of the minyan were men of color and families of color. It was run by, you know, a man named David Katan, who is um, now passed on. Um, he died this year. Um, may his memory be for a blessing. But yeah, we, we came up in a space where there were multiple families. My house on Shabbat and Yom Tov was filled with other Jews of color. I was not isolated in that. I was isolated in my school. In the, in the yeshiva I went to, it was just me and my sister. But in the world that I inhabited, I did not see my experience to be um, othered. I saw my experience replicated across lots of different faces and lots of different ways of being and a lot of joy and celebration. People enjoyed coming to my mother's house. She, my mother was a prolific cook. <laughs> her challah and like her soup. And, you know, she brought every ounce of Southern culinary deliciousness into a kosher kitchen, literally. <laughs> I'm like uh, super jealous. I mean, your mother's uh, neshama should have an aliyah. So I didn't get the opportunity to have any of this, you know, uh, that you're telling me about. Well, you can come to my house. I didn't forget anything. <laughs> okay, you didn't forget. You didn't forget nothing. I didn't forget anything. <laughs> All right, we have to stop through when I on my when I get to Boston, you know. But how important was that for you? Like my kids are sort of growing up in a similar situation. That's why I had to make sure that your brother in law sister uh, move close to us. You know, a lot of other people here. My brother and sister in law. My wife's sister is married to my best friend since kindergarten. They're also both, you know, obviously Jews of color. My wife's from Louisiana originally. So we do feel like it's important for our kids to not feel alone. You know what I mean? And that's one of the biggest things. Like, very similar to you, when they go to school, they are pretty much isolated. You know, they may have a cousin there. They may have themselves. And I don't think that they're doing a horrible job here. I think whatever has happened, and and I, I may have to give a lot of credit to you and your family and what your mother and your father did also, too, because I don't think it's the same as probably years back because some doors may have been broken down by you guys. But I think that it's been something very, very important. Do you feel like that had an influence on you growing up feeling like, you know what I mean? I, I'm not alone. I may be alone, you know, I'm saying in, in Kit the Gimel, but I'm not alone. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I think that it is important for us to collect and build community. But I'm going to tell you something very honest. Um, when I was younger, my father wasn't very interested in me marrying um, someone who was a convert. And I think about that a lot lately. I did, in the end, marry somebody who was a, a gear. But he, he said that the, the Rambam taught that we cannot create a community of converts. Right. And the reason why we can't create a community of converts, a Jewish community of converts, is because we have to remain at the essence, at the center of what Judaism becomes for the Am to remain the Am. And for us to remain a part of the um. So there's some both and that I, in my own generation, now remember, this is a convert saying that he wants his children to marry into folks who were essentially from, from birth. 
as a person who was born into this space, as a Black woman who is unapologetic about my Blackness, I found that it was harder for me to connect essentially with someone from the physicality of what whiteness has offered in the U.S. It was harder for me coming from the strong, solid background that I came from to be able to not have it be an inhibition and a barrier between me and someone I married, to be able to be in a cross-racial, cross-cultural partnership where there wasn't full understanding and appreciation of where I come from. Now, I, in the end, was willing, you know, when it, when it came time for Shaduchim, we dated, you know, I dated across, cross-culturally, cross-racially, but the man that eventually became um, my zivug was a person whose spirituality matched mine to such a depth that I think also was a part of us sharing a physicality and a history and a tradition that allowed us to really understand what our trajectory forward could hold. So there's a both and. Parents may have one approach to say, okay, we have to keep them all around other young Jews of color. We have to create a community of Jews of color. And I think it's that, plus being completely humble, that there's what color has taught us in our family line and tradition and the context of racism still being alive and well. And then there's the spirituality of what our color has taught us, right. which is where I'm at now. I want a spiritual community for my children where they are discerning about their Judaism and can be in the company of other people who don't allow race to be an obstacle construct. There aren't that many white folks that I meet who have spent a whole lot of time deconstructing the impact of race upon Judaism. I don't meet a lot of white people who have done that to the depth and breadth to which I could have started a family right. with them, even though my father probably would have encouraged me in the direction. So. Wow. Wow. Interesting. So let's talk about Ayeche. Right. You, you started Ayeche in 2001. So what inspired you, what motivated you uh, to do this, your professional career to serve the Jewish people and specifically Jews of color? Like, was it because of the upbringing or was there a moment or something like that that happened that made you like, I got to do this? It really was my mother. My mother was a very loving person and she would always give love, especially to the young people who were coming through with us in our home. She, you know, to everyone, she was Auntie Dina. And that was to people who who were by blood, our cousins, and even folks who were not. And to the young Jews of color that I came up with who needed a lot of chizuk and a lot of strength, she was there for them. And also when folks encountered challenges, usually for Jews of color, the challenge around identity comes up around adolescence. And when people become teens and are trying to find their identity and are experiencing themselves as othered in so many different environments, it's a very specific moment for when folks can go off the deck and can like, and, and I don't even really believe in that phrase. I'm just going to tell you personally, but <laughs> they can react to the experiences that, that are surrounding them. When a young person does not feel integrated within their community, I don't think that's most succinctly the problem of that young person. It's also the problem of the community. And when the community then shames and blames that young person and makes them feel like their ostracization is only their problem, we have a problem, right? Mask him. So that's where I feel. And so my mother would re try to reach for Jews of color and hold on to them. But many of the young people that I grew up with did not stay in mainstream Judaism. They left because it became too hard to feel like you had no community among Black people 
who are non-Jews and you also had no community among Jews. And to really feel that sense of integration took a lot of work. And so my mother never let go of any of those young people. You know, she was her own little Kirov machine and she would call them and she would check in and she would say, how are you doing? And she would always say to me, Yavi, we've got to find those kids. We've got, there has to be some space where those folks can find home. And even though our home was as best she could, a place where people could come, after a while, you know, if you're not doing the things other people are doing, you feel sometimes embarrassed. You feel like you don't have a place. And, you know, this is next-gen JOC stuff. This is not like, you know, in the first generation, we believe everything is possible. But when you've come through it over multiple generations, you see what triage looks like in our community. And the triage is real. And so when I first did Ayeha, Where Are You?, it was because my mother really wanted me to create some space online where folks who, you know, were spread out now and, you know, doing their own thing, they could find their way back to us. And that's what inspired me to do that work initially. Right. I agree with you so much. I mean, and you said something. You don't like the frame off the deck. I really want to under, give a, get a better understanding of what it is. Okay, so... I do think it has a very negative connotation where the community, like you said, have not taken enough responsibility to say that did we give a space for these guys to to find their own path within Judaism. I see it as a creative. A lot of talented young people, you know, of all different colors, but always ending up in these yeshivas of the of the rejects, which I think have really big neshamas, a lot of talent mm-hmm. and, and amazing personalities. And, and I've seen some of these guys come out of that system and they are superstars, right? But they didn't fit the derech, right? They didn't fit the path. Ultimately, I would say that a lot of what we see today, the system as, as, we, as we know it, I, I'm saying at least in the more from places, which is, which is probably the best that we can do what we know, right? I'm saying maybe. However, it wasn't designed for everybody. And years before, people worked a trade. Not everybody was sitting in Colel, And for sure, everybody's wife wasn't going out to go work for them. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying that there wasn't some gadolim and great people, but not everybody's Rav Chaim Kenevsky. Not everybody, you know what I'm saying? Not everybody can pursue that path. So when you, what's your problem with the term, I would like to say. Like, what is what bothers you about that term? Well, mostly it's because, and again, I learned most of my Torah comes from home and a mixture of what I learned in the system as a yeshiva and seminary person and what I learned at home. And my father was a, a deep Talmud of Rambam. And Rambam taught that we are, that Torah is a golden mean. That it's the middle path. It's not either on one extreme or another. It's a middle path that a human being finds that allows them to bring the best of themselves to their service of God. And I find that a lot of times when you're talking about folks that are on the margins, it's because the path itself has become too narrow. That we create paths that aren't wide enough for all of us to move through. And, you know, I think it was last month or so when we were talking about the Ari Mikla in relationship to the Parsha, it astounded me to find out, no, it was over the summer. And it, it astounded me that every single road in Yerushalayim, every single road in Eretz Yisrael had to be built wide enough so that if someone had to go down that road to find right a city of refuge, it was clear. It was clearly marked. What does that mean about roads and paths? right? This is somebody who might be ostracized for murder. And we made space enough on every road for that person to travel and find refuge. How much more so 
in the context of who we are every single day, just trying to find our way through Torah and mitzvot. There has to be space for people. And I find that we do not take accountability for noticing when our roads have become too narrow for all of us to travel with us. And that's why I don't believe in that term, because I've met too many, like you say, beautiful nishamot, beautiful human beings, that with the right love, with the right smile, with the right twinkle in somebody's eye, with the right welcoming, they could be amazing. And they are amazing, but they could be amazing in community. And we don't do our work to make that possible. So I look for the human in almost every interaction. Right. It's amazing. So tell me this, you focus a lot on the uh, intersectionality within race and gender and so forth. Why do you believe that focusing on these things, like the identities and different things like that, why do you think the intersect is so crucial for opening up the dialogue like today? Well, intersectionality, at least in orthodox spaces, sometimes not so orthodox spaces too, has gotten a bad rep because it's a way in which folks, at least in regard to issues of like equality and justice, are calling people out. So there's two ways to be able to justice. You can call people in, which essentially is like, it's, it's like tochacha, essentially. You can give somebody tochacha quietly in their ear, or you can give somebody tochacha if necessary in a public space, but the intention behind it has to be correct in order for you to be right in the right lane with this work. So the reason why I say intersectionality is so important is because if we don't understand that there are multiple things happening at once, often in one person's identity, that are creating the conditions in which they present in the world, we often only have half the story. So my journey is about, you know, the amount of melanin in my skin, possibly to some, but it's also about my gender, right? And it's also about my class. And it's also about my entry point to Jewish identity in terms of elitism, right? The, the elitism, that the hierarchies of value that we create across denominations, across um, Torah knowledge, right? So all of those different things intersect in one person's identity to the great conditions in which they present to the world. And so, you know, if someone just says, oh, we're all Jews, you know, let's all like, you know, sing honey, mommy, we're all Jews. So if people want to do that, that's great. And if I'm singing Animamin in a group of girls who are inching slowly to the right and don't want to link hands with me specifically because they think my black skin is going to rub off on them, which has happened to me in yeshiva settings. It's happened to my kids also. Okay. So when this happens, then it's we're all Jews is not enough. We have to start breaking the dimensions, which is why my organization is called Dimensions. You have to start looking into the dimensions of what Jewish holds and still make the commitment that we are one community. So intersectionality allows us to go a little deeper beneath the surface and look at all the ways in which we have the capacity to um, welcome each other or exclude each other on various dimensions of who we are. Interesting. I want to get to anti-Semitism, but before I get there, because you just said something that sparks me, and it's something that, you know, all Jews of color absolutely have to deal with, is, and more so in, for sure, the last year or two with everything that's been going on in America socially. I view these things really as separate things, dealing with prejudices and, and racism in the Jewish community and outside the community. I've had completely different experiences. Part of the reason is, I think, 
And, you know, I've gone on record for sure saying that I don't speak for every person of color. I grew up in Seattle. Seattle is everything. It does have a hood. It has all this other thing. Uh, one thing that it doesn't have a lot of is blatant racism. We don't deal with that. Back east and definitely down south, my wife has probably experienced more coming from Louisiana than what I have. But I don't know from that. You know, I know of the systemic racism of what everybody else had to deal with in terms of like, you know, which I've gone on record, obviously saying being number one in sports performing arts my school we literally had the number one basketball team in the country we were high ranked in football we were and brand new uniforms brand new stadium everything brand new basketball court every year we had we we it was like amazing but we were last in test scores and we didn't have books inside the school so somewhere the budgeting i don't know who was doing the budgeting but they they missed out you understand but in terms of like actually feeling like somebody made me feel different about my color. I didn't experience that. And to be honest, I haven't experienced it much in Judaism. I think a lot of it is because a lot of people know me. I'm very much so out there. I've been a public figure, but my kids have, you know, or my wife has and other people that I know have. So my question is, do you look at these and try to address these from two different angles or do you view it as it's all coming from the same place? Well, you know, I'm a professional in this field now. So, yeah. Well, that's why I'm asking you. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I know. I know. So <laughs> from the perspective of my parnasa, right, and my expertise, right, I'm speaking about racism on two levels for sure. One is just on the personal level, yes, how interpersonally our assumptions and our ideas and our biases show up in terms of how we treat each other. That's one thing. But then there's systems. And when we talk about systems, this is how when groups come together and create opportunities for folks to join or be excluded from groups, then racism has a different um, spin. In institutions, right, when you have the ability to admit someone or not admit someone when your institution has been set up to provide a service, that has a different spin. All of these things have to do with the way in which Maybe I feel really great about myself, right? And I've never had anybody try to make me feel less than. And when I walk into an environment where people have power, more power than I do, I experience myself as less than because of discrimination in that regard. And it's super important for folks not to separate the two. Um, I mean, not to conflate the two and act as if they're the same thing. You know, my neighbors say, oh, you're so great. And if we're the only, you know, people of color on my block in Boston because the zoning laws create barriers to class and to bank loans and to all sorts of different things, then racism is not just a matter of whether you like me. Racism is about how in systems people of color are being discriminated against. So we as a Jewish community have issues and challenges to navigate around both of those things. Yes, I want my children to be liked. And yes, I want Yeshivot to be thinking about what part of their policies, systems, practices, ways of being are exclusionary to people who are not Ashkenazi and white. And if they have not done any thinking about it, they are more susceptible to practicing racism as a norm because the assumption, the meta assumption is when they say we and when they say service, they're talking about a very particular kind of Jewish person. And I've multiple times I've walked into spaces, you know, my kids are now grown. My oldest daughter now is, you know, out of college. But from the time that they had to enter into different institutional systems, 
they, people, I'll sit across from an administrator says, oh, we have no race problem here. I said, really? Have you ever asked? <laughs> well, no. That's my, like, how do you actually know if you've never asked? Right. Have you ever talked to the people who walked in and walked right back, right back out of the door? Do you have data? Do you have research? Have you looked at your policies and asked the question, who is welcomed by these policies and who is left out? This is the work of racism, too. Right, 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 right. We, we spend too much time talking about whether we like each other. Quite frankly, I'm old enough where I quite I don't care whether you like me. Or not. <laughs> I have plenty of friends. I have a really good, warm community. If you don't like me, we don't have to like everybody, and we don't want to practice sinaschinam with each other, and we don't want to be in a situation where even if you can't love me, you don't feel motivated that you should love me because that's what the Torah has asked of you. So if you're in your process and you're doing your work and you're not quite there yet, like I said, great, you keep doing your work. I'll catch you when you're ready. In the meantime, I'm loving on myself and I'm loving on my own family. So there's a way in which we have to like balance, like loving each other, not loving each other. That's going to be a human problem. We're constantly going to be in that. Systems and institutions, that's a whole different thing. If my kid can't get into a school simply because he looks like this, that's not a whether you like me problem. That's your system has a problem. If I can't walk into a grocery store and get what I need on a Shabbos afternoon because you're serving everybody else and I, you assume I'm the person who doesn't need what I actually need, up oh, we've got a system organizational problem. So we have to start paying attention to both sides of what impact is around racism. You don't want to run a store where it's discriminating against people. You don't want to run a school where it's discriminating against people. We don't want to run yeshiva where there's discrimination against people. So that's an institutional job we have to do to clean up what our entry point is to that work. And that's what I do as an expert. Wow. Amazing. So next question is the anti-Semitism question. Obviously, you have a perspective being a jewel color that other people are not going to have. Now, when it comes to anti-Semitism, which is like growing rapidly on college campuses, I remember one time I was um, giving service to somebody. I was working in property management years ago. And I was helping them. I had a keep on and everything, but everybody, you know, a black guy with a keep on. I think back then I was wearing a knitted keep. This several years ago, so he thought I was a Muslim. And so I'm talking to this guy, and you know, he's letting me know, and I'm hearing, and I'm dealing with people that are coming from lower income or whatever. And he had a problem with some last landlord, and and the guy that kicked him out had a lawyer involved, and the lawyer was Jewish. And then he starts bad mouthing Jews right in front of me, and I'm like, hey, you know. Brother, you know, you know, I said, picked up my yarmulke, like, hold on, you know, and then we had, a, had to have a kumbaya and had to talk, you know. Um, but it's one of those things where you may also get overlooked in other circles when you're around other people of color and, and you blend in in other circles and people start speaking bad about Jews. Like, I want to know how you how you deal with that and how you combat that. Yeah, I think anti-Semitism is literally the denigration, right, of the Jewish people, our practices, our cultures, our customs. And it's also systemic. Just like I was talking to you about racism having its place in systems, anti-Semitism has had its place in systems too. I mean, there was a time in Russia where there were 600 different laws on the books discriminating against Jews. Easy, right? Just like we have multiple laws that are still on the books in the United States that uphold racism you know, that are, that are built upon segregation and assumptions of white supremacy. 
that's still on our books here in the United States too. So when I talk about anti-Semitism and I encounter anti-Semitism with um, people of color who are especially, you know, black folks like me who might get comfortable as I guess that's what you're doing, right? Who might get comfortable and something might pop out of their mouth. I see it just as much as I see with white Jews as a moment of education if we're in relationship. Meaning if there's a relationship to be preserved here, then what I'm saying to them is not to like, cast and them away and dispose of them as an anti-Semite is to make them aware of where they might be practicing anti-Semitic behavior or where they might have assumptions that are based in something called anti-Semitism that they want to give up. So has that happened to me? Absolutely. You know, when I when I go down south, my family's from down south. I was in a park with my kids one time in North Carolina and the woman sitting next to me on the bench was we talking and having a good conversation. And then she's like, oh, like, why do your kids have, you know, those hats on like you? Are you all Muslim? And I was like, no, nope, we're not Muslim. We're Jewish. And she's like, y'all are Jewish. And I could see her. It was just like going through her head. Like, you know, <laughs> slow grind. Right. All the things she's ever heard about Jews, right? And so then she like sits there for a second. And then she's like, yeah, but doesn't that bother you that your children are going to be going to hell? Right. <laughs> just with a straight face. And I just like, I had to look at her and I was just like, is that the first thing you want to say to me? Right. <laughs> and then she had she started laughing, right? Because she wasn't trying to hate on me. She was trying to right. process through all the things she's heard in her. And it just, it was a moment of cognitive dissonance. And bleh, out popped out of her mouth. But wait a minute, but what about that hell thing? Don't you know you going to hell? That is crazy. <laughs> so after a minute, then she, she could see I wasn't letting go of her, that we were still going to be able to have a conversation. Then we talked about it. And in talking about it, she was just like, right. yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that doesn't make sense. And okay. And like, you know, and our kids are playing together. You know, everything is we're still cool, cool. But the, the problem here became misinformation that got laid in primarily, I would say, from a Christianity context right. in Black communities about what Jews are. And when I left that encounter, I wasn't just like, you know, I wasn't just happy that I had a chance to stay in connection with another Black person and give her a lot of good information that she could now use. I also was concerned about how much misinformation people get from being separated from Jews in communities in the U.S. We do not live together. We live in the same communities and end up living separate lives. And so uh, that's where misinformation gets laid in. And just the same way that I'm doing that with a Black woman who has heard some things about, you know, Jews having horns and Jews going to hell and all this other stuff that makes no sense in my body that she's meeting, right? The same thing is true of white Ashkenazim who make the same assumptions about people of color. And I've had to like sit with them too and say, do you really want to sit here and have a conversation with me where you're using the term Shvarsa? <laughs> Is that something that makes sense to you given what pops up in your mind when you say Shvarsa and all of that negativity and you sitting right over here looking at me and we're supposed to be having Kiddush and Shabbat? Like, how does all of that go together? <laughs> so anti-Semitism is real. And I, I fight anti-Semitism in systems. So the way in which anti-Semitism shows up in elections, the way in which anti-Semitism shows up in communities where folks have been segregated as a result. There was a like Baltimore. A lot of people don't know this. Baltimore's big yeshiva town. But Baltimore, Jews were told where they could live. And as a result of being told where they can live, wow. the entire derivation of Baltimore as a city came up under racism 
but also anti-Semitism wow. because Jews couldn't live wow. on the white side of town. They had to live in the Jewish part, the Jewish ghetto that was created in Baltimore. So that's anti-Semitism. The fact that there's a Jewish hospital in every town, almost every city you can go to in the U.S. Why is there a Jewish hospital? Because the medical system in our country wouldn't give white Jews who graduated from our university systems jobs to the point where they had to create whole hospitals, right, to resist anti-Semitism in our medical institutions. That's baked into who we are in the U.S. That's anti-Semitism, if you ask me. And there's folks who are holding anti-Semitic views because of what they've been taught in their families and the way we've lived with each other here in the U.S. And that's the kind of anti-Semitism that caused somebody to pick up a gun and drive miles away to a Pittsburgh synagogue and shoot up people because they feel like Jews are the reason why, you know, this country is going down. Jews are the reason why we have immigrants here. All of that is anti-Semitism to me. That's the most dangerous form of anti-Semitism. The anti-Semitism that I've encountered with Black people, for me mostly, has been a point of education. Okay, so I know I want to get you out of here soon, but I'm enjoying myself a little bit too much. So I have to ask you, like, one or two more questions. <laughs> I'm just sitting over here. I feel like I'm in class. Anyway, growing up, was there people that really had an impact on you that you could look back and say, like, you know, this was a life-changing experience and it's helped me throughout my career? Absolutely. When I was in seminary, I went to seminary in Harnof, and I got to be reunited with my pre-1A teacher, Maura Vivia Langsam. And Maura Vivia Langsam taught us in pre-1A, but she had a very specific practice in circle where she would go around the circle and she would say, rock Panina or rock Hana. And what she was saying when we got around the circle is that at this point, only this child is going to get to speak and say whatever um, they needed to say in relationship to the Parsha. So rather than just call on kids to start it off with that rock practice, right? Only you. It was, it was loving on us and giving us a chance to shine. And everybody knew they were going to get a chance. So it wasn't like a hierarchy thing. Um, and so I just thrived for the time when she would say, rock your villa. And I would get to like hail forth about whatever my parents had been telling me or whatever. So, um, but the, the other thing was that I grew up in the 70s. So rock also was resonating for me. I remember as a young kid with like rock steady, right? The kids around the block, we would have this rock steady thing where they would go rock, 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 rock steady. And then one person would get to do their thing, right? In a group of girls. So the confluence of those things of me being able to rock and also me being rock only Yavila in Hebrew was a beautiful thing that I experienced with Mora Avivia. And Mora Avivia also had so much love in her that she was the first person to teach me Hebrew. Like I learned Hebrew under her tutelage. I was, you know, she made me, she didn't make me Queen Esther, even though I wanted to be Queen Esther in the play. I did get to be King Achachverosh though. And she made me feel really excited about being King Achachverosh now. Um, <laughs> I remember them, those words to that play too. So, Maura Avivia Langsam showed me love when I was very young, and that was my first entry, the very first year coming into yeshiva, and it created a foundational space where the acceptance that I had at home could also be experienced in the Jewish institutional space, and not all my siblings had a similar experience. That was crucial, I feel like, to my entry. Wow. The other teacher later on, going up into like eighth grade, kind of like heading into high school, was Rabbi Label Newman. And Rabbi Label Newman would come in once a week to teach the girls. He was the principal, the Hebrew principal, the, the mashpia. And he would come in once a week right after davening 
you know, I still can hear the sounds of all the chairs. And when an elder walks in the room, you have to stand up no matter what you're doing. So we would be shuffling around, whatever. And all of a sudden that he hit that door and it was, everybody stands up. Yes. So we stood up for Rabbi Label Newman, but, and he, and we had such a deep respect for him as an educator. But what happened is as he taught us the Chavod, what he would do is he would come close to the edge of your desk. And if he felt like what you were saying, he would lean down, he would look you in the eye and he would go, excellent. Mm. And I still remember what it was like to have Rav Label Newman come by in the middle of a Torah year, stand by the edge of my desk after I had said something and lean over and go, excellent. Because what it did, I remember inside of me, it made me feel like, like I'm here, right? Like this is my place. Like learning Torah is something that's where I get to be excellent. I think those two teachers were foundational and deeply made a deep impression on me that even when I was in spaces where folks would like, you know, not, not like my kids, with teacher wouldn't call on them, where they would, you know, assume that they didn't know the answer. There was all sorts of ways, like I said, this lack of expectation for excellence in yeshiva with young children of color becomes a problem and a challenge. The ones who didn't do that and the ones who showed me something different gave me hope that there could be something else. That's amazing. And so that's why I remain connected even to my Torah now because of those people. Amazing. So my last but not least question is if you could go back and you could talk to a young Yavila, what advice would you give your younger self? Mm. I know it's a tough one. I've been asked it before and I also stopped for a second. I'm thinking about it. I mean, mostly what I would tell her is stop worrying so much about what other people think and spend more time just enjoying what you have. I think when we're younger, we always are looking toward the next day. Tomorrow is going to be better or something else is going to happen and it's going to change what you see right now. But there was a lot of beauty around me that I can see now as an older person that maybe I may have stepped over quickly when I was young. Like if I could just hold on to how rich and unique the experience of being in a sukkah with my parents and multiple you know, families and generations of Jews of color and the singing, you know, like there are so many different things that left uh, an imprint on my soul. If I could have just spent more time living in that and being in that and just noticing how special and unique it was, like if I could travel back in time, I would sit with Yavila and just enjoy that. Wow. Beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. Mm -hmm. Appreciate you being on the show. And uh, I'm like, Excited to talk to you again. Hopefully next time it's in person in Boston over a few of your mother's recipes. <laughs> May it be so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. All right. Take care, Nisim. Bye-bye. All right. You too. Wow, wow, wow. Ladies and gentlemen, I am like... Done. That was an amazing conversation with Yavila McCoy. I learned a lot, but not only did I learn a lot, she actually affirmed some things. It was beautiful to have that conversation. I think still on the deal, I really haven't had, apart from, I think, you know, Marge Stoudemire, another Jew of color, but, you know, just the amount of knowledge that she was able to give and bring forth and the fact that she's so seasoned. She was born Jewish. She grew up and I and like, you know, being a Jew of color, I heard about her family for many years. So it was just an amazing opportunity for me um, to hear her perspective. And I'm like really floored. I really didn't expect for the conversation to be just like, wow, like that. And it was. She's a powerhouse. I think 
that I have a lot to learn from her. I feel like the overall community can learn a lot from the things that she's saying. So, as I always do, I love to leave you guys with a song. And I think my song for this week is my brand new song, Change. Um, I think that it's a very, very appropriate song for not only the conversation, but just for the time. Ready to Change, a song about growth and going through hardships and really looking towards God and being able to say, like, you know, I'm going to take this leap. There's a lot of people have to do, even of, of color, whatever background that they came in, coming into Judaism, of being like, I have to trust you. My heart is leading me in this direction, God, but I'm not used to trusting you. But now I'm going to give it over to you and I'm ready to change. I just don't want you to leave me. So that's the word to this song. And so until next time, dealers, only go from strength to strength and be strengthened. Running so blind, they nearly tripped all over you. Yeah, yeah. I only stumble, I got humbled when you moved. Yeah, yeah. So many hardships I was fighting to get through. Yeah. Because you shined a light on me and let me choose. Yeah, yeah. You pulled me up when I was low. Yeah. I didn't trust you, I didn't know how to let go. Yeah. And I got worried because I like to keep control. Yeah. Even in places that I never been before. Yeah. I turned it over to you when you let me flow. Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. This is a Soul Shop original podcast. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Gilad Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. Please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly, God's me. I do for your love Trying to reach up to you I be short some But I'm ready for change I wanna know you